Welcome to Good Things Happen, the podcast series that celebrates the human side of banking and finance. Today, our focus is on Asia and the region's remarkable and in many ways unique application of digital technology. Asia's adoption and use of communication technology differs so much so that a recent report from Citi considers Asia as a time machine to the future. To help explore this intriguing concept, we're joined by Larry Summers and Jan Metzger. For many listeners, Larry will need no introduction, having served both US President Clinton and President Obama's administrations. Considered to be one of America's and the world's leading economists, Larry has also served as the president of Harvard University. Jan is Asia Pacific's head of investment banking for Citi, the publishers of the aforementioned GPS report. Jan, born in Germany, raised in Sri Lanka, educated in the UK, and now living in Hong Kong, can give us his own on-the-ground personal perspective of the report's insights. Before we jump into the time machine, we will begin, as always, by hearing our guests' formative stories. Larry, thank you so much for joining us today. I'd love for you to give our listeners, who may be just starting out on their own careers, some insights into your early years. Did you imagine when you were a precocious young man that you were going to be joining future presidents with economics, or did you have other ambitions? I uh, thought I would be a mathematician or a physicist when I was in a high school and I went to MIT. And then I took economics courses and I took math and physics courses, and I realized both that I was much better at economics than I was at math and physics, and that I was ultimately interested in doing work that bore on public policy issues and that directly made people's lives uh, better. And I had the insight one day, I don't remember how it struck me, that if you, as an economist, do something that makes the unemployment rate one-tenth of a percent lower for one month in the United States. That's 150,000 extra kids who can see their parents go off to work rather than be at home discouraged, whereas a doctor can see only individual patients. And so it was the ability of economic reasoning and economic thinking to permit impacts on a macro scale that first drew me into uh, economics. I also came to be uh, enormously impressed with the power of data to resolve arguments and to decide uh, what was a better and a worse approximation to truth. And I thought those kinds of understandings could contribute importantly to a better world. So you were a, a data time machine yourself, uh, by by all accounts. Jan, how about you? What, what did you want to do when you grew up? Yeah, well, look, I I studied uh, computer science and artificial intelligence at uh, at university, and I had a huge passion for software engineering. So I followed that passion. I went and uh, worked on the world's first commercial voice recognition system and poured my heart and soul into, into this thing. Um, it was unfortunately probably 
25 years too early. Uh, the hardware wasn't powerful enough yet. So uh, via various uh, twists and turns, uh, I ended up as a banker, which I also really enjoy uh, because the learning curve here uh, never ends and you get to work with great new companies with great technologies all the time. And thank you for letting me share that. I love both those intros. It sums up what this podcast is all about. Economics isn't just about dry data and banking isn't just about money. It's so many more things. Let's jump straight into the report, Larry. Um, what's your explanation for this intriguing title, Asia as a Time Machine? Give us an overview for, for that, please. I remember being struck around the turn of the century that it had been called the Industrial Revolution because for the first time in human history, life expectancy at the end or living standards at the end of a life were greater than living standards at the beginning of a life. And so in Britain in the 19th century, perhaps at the end of a 40 or 45 year lifespan, the economy had grown to the point where living standards were 50% greater. 1.5 times as large as they had been uh, at the beginning of a life. And then I realized what was happening in China, that in China, living standards at that time were doubling every decade. And with living standards doubling every decade and a human lifespan of 70 years, it was reasonable to think that life's living standards could increase not by 1.5 times, not by 15 times, but by perhaps 50 times over the course of a human lifespan. And it seemed to me that that was probably the largest and most important thing that had ever happened in economic history. And to the extent that it changed in profound ways the way people lived in cities rather than in the country, doing mental work rather than backbreaking physical uh, labor, having access to technologies that could respond uh, to sicknesses. Most people in a population becoming uh, literate, a transformation in things like there being more obesity than there was hunger uh, in the uh, population. People no longer having more and more children but so they could be confident that somebody would support them in their old age. And yeah, and, uh, in terms of time of this time machine, what, 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 what's the time lag that we're talking about? Look, we think it's about eight to 12 years uh, that Asia is ahead. And as one of the things that Larry pointed out, an exciting reason for us is, is that the West has a lot of infrastructure developed and Asia is leaping, uh, leapfrogging right uh, to a future tech state. And it's very, very interesting for investors around the world actually to watch that and use that as a bit of a prediction what will happen uh, in, in the developed world. And this leapfrogging, actually, and maybe I may be so bold and humbly ask Larry to comment a bit on it. I think some of Larry's com uh, colleagues have done amazing work on uh, on leapfrogging uh, in the past. And Larry, I've heard Larry talk about it 
um, with, with great insight and maybe was going to humbly ask Larry if you were willing to share some of your thoughts on the leapfrogging. It is easier to emulate than to innovate. And so countries that have lagged can grow more rapidly because they can emulate technologies that have been developed elsewhere rather than needing to uh, develop uh, their own. So I think there are substantial reasons to see very great opportunity in uh, what is happening in Asia. To be sure, there are enormous challenges as well, both politically and uh, economically. And I, for one, don't expect that China will be able to maintain the growth that it has maintained historically. Um, but I think that even with much slower growth, what's happening is a truly remarkable historical story. What other infrastructure what might have seen as deficiencies before the emergence of digital media there now no, no longer needs to be the kind of infrastructure building that happened in the developed countries that uh, Asia is now using digital communication to take a lead. Well, I think there are two things to say. The single big, biggest source of digital divides is illiteracy. And where you don't have universal education, you can have all the iPads and all the technology you want, but there's going to be big limits on how much the population is uh, empowered. And that's, I think, the first thing uh, to say. I think the other thing is that we just get better at developing ways of communicating electronically. And that's why the cellular uh, revolution, the revolutions that are coming in uh, computing power, quantum computing uh, will, I suspect, uh, come. And all of that is going to mean that to achieve a given level of technological competence to be able to solve given problems with the hardware and software that's available in the 2020s will be vastly cheaper than it was with the hardware and software that was available in the decade of the 2010s. And that creates a great potential for uh, the followers rather than those who went first. Uh, Jan told the story of um, his voice uh, system uh, from his youth. It didn't really work because it was too expensive because the technology wasn't far enough developed. Well, that's an example that's gonna be repeated many times over where more and more good ideas are going to be implementable and implemented than was the case a decade before. Yeah, and can you give us some examples of specific technologies where Asia's behavior is different? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll build on, on the foundation that, that Larry uh, built here. One great example is retail. 
Um, so if you rewind the clock a few years ago in, in the United States, there was about two and a half square meters of retail space per capita. Every for man, woman and child, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of shopping area. And through the rise of e-commerce, um, China will never develop such a big physical uh, retail space. And you will also see and you're already seeing actually in the U.S. it reducing as e-commerce is coming. And other great examples uh, are healthcare. There's a lot of telemedicine actually all over the world now uh, due to COVID, but in, in you know uh, China, Indonesia, and India, we're actually quite ahead of that trend for similar reasons. And a huge amount uh, in, uh, in fintech and mobile wallets in particular in, in many emerging uh, economies in Asia, uh, you can pay everything with a mobile phone much harder to pay everything with a with a credit card. Larry, um, I'm interested in cultural differences. Uh, I love different cultures and how people approach service industries. Do you think culture also is uh, influencing how people use technology so that technology inevitably will be adopted in different ways? I'm sure there are cultural differences. I'm sure that it's not a complete accident that the ratio of cell phones to adult population is higher in Hong Kong than it is in almost any other uh, city. Um, so, so I'm sure there are cultural differences, but I'm someone who prefers to think in terms of human universals and I think that in many ways, these technologies are going to come to be pervasive. They're probably going to come to make different parts of the world a bit more similar if you take the longest uh, view of uh, things. But that's going to be a process that's going to take a long time. And it's going to be a process that's shaped by the fact that some people in some places have become habituated to certain things and other places have become rather less habituated uh, to things. There are important parts of the world and important populations where uh, the habit of having a large library never developed. In those kinds of worlds, the world of the ebook is going to be that much more important. And Larry, if I if I could ask you one thing that you talked about with us the other day was you had some great observations on the entrepreneurship you've observed uh, in Asia during some of your visits here. And if I could humbly ask you to, you know, to maybe share some of those. Look, I I don't know why it is. In some ways, it goes back um, a very, very long time. But uh Chinese populations, uh, Indian uh, populations, other Asian population groups have very long traditions of individuality and of um, entrepreneurship and of being prepared uh, to uh, take substantial uh, risks. And I think now you're seeing um, both uh, 
large cadres of trained entrepreneurs, a really strong work ethic on the part of those entrepreneurs. And we're seeing with the work that institutions like City is doing with uh, local institutions, purely local institutions as well, we're seeing more and more capacity for those entrepreneurs to get financing, to get the assistance that they require as they seek to scale. So I think as we look at uh, what might be called unicorn in incubating regions, I think we're going to see much, much more of that in Asia than we see elsewhere. I'm interested in this notion of the, the leapfrogging. Does that mean the developed markets will look at what's happening in Asia and there's an opportunity with new emerging technologies, AI, for example, for them to leapfrog or are we going to go off on different paths? Ah, yeah, it's a great question. So I, <laughs> thanks for, for letting me answer it. I think on the leapfrogging, I'd say two things. Uh, one is you will see leapfrogging in things like retail, healthcare, mobile payments, and you will see the West looking uh, at the East and, um, you know, copying, mentioning, learning from it because that leapfrog. And really, if you want a very popular news example, uh, and you listen to Elon Musk talking about uh, X. Um, and the things, the everything that he wants to do in it. He's actually talking about Asian communicators as an example of some of the things he he wants to emulate. And that's a, a famous business personality uh, looking um, out here for, for things to learn. On your question on AI, it's a little bit leading and is more likely to be impacted by geopolitics than, uh, than you know, the discussion we're, we're having here. But what is... Uh, interesting uh, within that is uh, is the data that's being generated by a lot of the digital leapfrogging that has happened and how that will be used to uh, to feed AI systems to further help mankind move forward. Larry, I, I, I'd love your take on AI. It seems to be the subject that's on every everybody's lips. Uh, I think there's a lot of ignorance, there's a lot of scare stories, there's a lot of optimism, it depends who you talk to, but it seems that you've been, as you said in your introduction, you've been fascinated with data right from the beginning of your career. Um, what's your take on artificial intelligence and, and how might it serve humanity? My general sense is that um, with respect to these technologies, Things take longer to happen than you think they will, and then they happen faster than you thought they could. So if you think about, for example, electronic readers, I think many people 25 years ago would have expected that they'd be reading the newspaper on an electronic reader five years later, and it didn't, didn't happen uh, that way. I think many, many people a decade ago thought that they'd be being picked up in the airport in an autonomous vehicle um, within a few years. And that hasn't happened uh, either. So on the one hand, I think it often takes a very long time for these technologies to go the last mile until they're ultimately useful 
and become pervasive. On the other hand, once those things happen, the transformation can be extremely fast, as it's been extremely um, fast with respect to electronic reading of publications, as it's been extremely fast with respect to streaming, displacing traditional cable, as it's been uh, extremely uh, fast in uh, the e-commerce uh, area. Uh, so I think you are going to see AI have a huge impact over the next 25 years, but I suspect over the next few years, the impact's going to be a little bit less than many people imagine. Jan, do you think uh, Asia, considering what the report says about the time machine and their adoption of technology being advanced in many ways, do you think they'll have a data advantage or do they have a data advantage? In certain areas, I certainly believe so. Because if you look at mobile payments, you you, you have mobile payments by volume in, in excess of 100x the rest of the world and in terms of actual individual transactions, massive amounts uh, in, in healthcare and retail as well. So there is a, a huge store of, of data that's available. And so in some sense, in areas where that matters, that can be very, very helpful. There are um, telemedicine providers in China who are doing 600,000 plus consultations a day. Um, every single one of those consultations uh, can be extraordinarily helpful if you're training an AI doctor. Clearly, there will be big regulatory uh, and data privacy considerations around that that need to be worked through and solved. And um, many countries are developing quite sensibly uh, strict rules around this. But intrinsically, there is a huge amount of data available the earlier you digitize. Larry, I'd like to ask a really basic question. It's obviously, it's very often the basic questions that may be the, the more difficult, but uh, I think you'll get, you'll have this. Um, just for, for those who may not be so initiated with economic development and the connection between these technologies informing economic growth, can you give us a, a kind of a, a, an explanation as to why the advantages Asia have will be so fundamental in them, in the speed of their growth? Look, I think that exponential growth is the most rapid growth that fuels uh, anything. There's a very powerful law, the law of 72, says that if something grows at 2% a year, it will take 36 years to double. If it grows at 4% a year, it will take 18 years to grow, to double. If it grows at 10% a year, it will take only 7.2 years to double. And so how many doublings take place within a generation or how many doublings take place within a human lifetime or how many doublings take place within a century? depend very profoundly on rates of growth. And what Asia has going for it is a number of different things. Asia has an entrepreneurial culture. We already talked about that. Asia has a 
deep commitment to education. And if you look at measures of educational achievement of young people on a global comparative basis, they are extremely strong um, in Asia. And Asia in many places has a tradition of high saving and therefore high investment rates. And if you're prepared to put more aside for the future, that other things equal tends to make for a better future. And those are all reasons why Asia has over the last couple of decades, even with all the challenges, outgrown other parts of the global economy. How long will that continue? That uh, remains uh, to be seen. But I think there's a very strong platform for accomplishment of a great deal um, in uh, Asia. Yeah, and we're talking about a whole region. And obviously that region has many different countries within it. Can you give me some examples from from some of these technologies from different countries? Because we're not saying Asia is a, a proxy for China. I think you've got examples in the report from Korea and you know other parts of Asia. Yeah, so so look, one uh, one thing which is interesting around that is a lot of Asia is very young, so that's very similar. But to to hone into your uh, question about different things from different countries, in Korea, for example, it's a country that embraced uh, high-speed internet faster than anybody else and has more broadband penetration. And there you have a, a phenomenal penetration of, of esports. You have a, a great amount of consumption of cultural things like uh, like comics and and K-pop, um, so that's uh, that's phenomenal in uh, in uh, inside uh, inside Korea. If you flip over uh, to India, uh, you have really interesting things happening in e-commerce. That's really quite unique to India and and quite exciting about how they've managed to penetrate. Um, also some of the smaller cities. In Indonesia, one of my favorite examples is transportation as a service is done on the back of a, of a motor scooter. So not in a car, you, the guy shows up in a motor scooter, hands your helmet and, and you do it. And because that's much less capex uh, compared, to, compared to other things. And then in China, you've got phenomenal things happening in telemedicine. So each country in Asia has slightly uh, different uh, things happening at slightly different, uh, with slightly different definitions from, but it is also interesting how fast Asian countries learn from each other and how much they embrace each other's uh, innovations. Larry, I was very taken in your introduction about the, the, the fundamental changes that were happening, happening in the so-called second industrial revolution and you were taken by those shifts like once in a lifetime shifts um what's happening now and how do you as a kind of macro economist how do you how do you keep tabs on this how do you follow these trends look i think part of what's remarkable about this moment is that around the science of information you have profound changes in computing 
you have profound new insights in the life sciences. You have profound new approaches to material science. And you have um, these profound new capacities to create um, learning systems, to create artificial intelligence. And so I think that if there is such a thing as a uniquely general purpose technology, I wonder if the digital understanding we now have is an even more general purpose technology and general purpose approach than ones we had early. Could you explain that a bit more when you talk about general purpose? There's an idea that historians have uh, stressed in talking about technology, that there have been a small number of general purpose technologies that find very widespread application in a lot of areas. Fire, the wheel, the steam engine, electricity, computing would all be examples of general purpose technology. And what I'm suggesting is that as general as they were in their purposes and their fields of application, the digital information mode of thought may be that much more pervasive in terms of its ultimate impact on uh, how we all live. Fascinating. Jan, what are your observations on that? I, I often think, uh, I, I love the stories of the unintended consequences of uh, technologies. They're invented for one thing, but then humanity finds ingenious ways to use them for other reasons. Um, What's your view on the exponential development of these technologies and the influence of digital? Yeah, so the one thing that's really been fascinating to observe in, in Asia, and in particular in Southeast Asia, is that many of the great innovating companies start with one application, so ride-sharing in Indonesia, then realize they have hundreds of thousands or even millions uh, of, of riders uh, and uh, and consumers and then say, hey, why don't we give them a way to pay each other? And so it's interesting um, how a use case can morph and encom encompass other useful things in ways that you did not necessarily uh, not necessarily expect. And that's that's been really fascinating, uh, to, you know, to to watch here. Larry, I'm interested uh, as an economist, would you consider yourself to be an optimist when you see these huge shifts and you look at this data or can economists not be optimists? Are, are you are you going to give me that answer of you're a realist? No, I think I'm basically someone who believes that um, trends are 75 or 80% good and events are 75% bad. And we naturally focus on events rather than trends because, you know, the newspaper never has a headline of the form, digitization continues. Um, <laughs> and so I think we're led to be too pessimistic. And I find it helpful often to look back at things not 
today versus last month, but today versus 10 years ago or today versus 20 years ago. And by seeing things that way, I think one becomes more and more optimistic. Same question to you, Jan. Are you, are you optimistic about uh, what, what you learned in the report? Uh, I know the world is, is tricky in many ways, to Larry's point of there's lots of events going on that are getting bad headlines, but are you, is, is the report give you confidence that uh, good things are gonna happen, to coin a phrase? I'm relentlessly optimistic. I once listened to a, a, a speech Larry gave at Tsinghua University, which was part of my reason for, for relentless optimism. And I, 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 I hope I don't misquote you, Larry, but you were talking about that poverty has never been more reduced. There have never been more opportunities. There have never been less violence in the world than there is today. And those are all trends that uh, that we hope continue even with some bad events here compared to uh, 100 or 150 years ago, mankind is in much, much better shape. And the other really interesting point is the speed with which mankind has gotten better over the last 150 years. Yeah, and uh, I often say about this podcast, if we if we could convince one liberal arts undergraduate to consider banking as a career, uh, and I say that because, you know, when I was graduating, I just assumed banking was for mathematicians and in economists. So to Larry's point, is is EQ an important thing in your industry? The the most important thing, the biggest reasons M&A deals fail is uh, the ego of two founders. And one doesn't want the other to be chairman or what will the new company be called? Somebody with a lot of EQ will find uh, the compromise that uh, that makes some uh, some magical combination happen. So absolutely, EQ will be much more important uh, than IQ. The other thing which will happen today, uh, a vast amount of work for younger bankers is, is processing things. Um, and that is such a workload. They have little time sometimes to to think about great new solutions. And I, I think a lot of the processing will be done by AI, giving more time to think about, uh, you know, to think strategically, to think about, you know, uh, emotional intelligence and, and other things and what clients care and, and need. So it will further, uh, it will further prove and be a very, will be an even more fun industry to work in. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Sadly, we've run out of time. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your insight. For anybody who's interested in reading the whole of the Asia as a Time Machine to the Future report, you'll find it on the City website. Thank you and goodbye. City Group and Lawrence Summers are not affiliated and are independent organizations. Though City has onboarded Lawrence Summers as a consultant, speakers use it their own and may not necessarily reflect the views of City or any of its affiliates. All opinions are subject to change without notice. Neither the information provided nor any opinion expressed constitutes a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. The expressions of opinion are not intended to be a forecast of future events or guarantee of future results. Music